This episode of Recovery is Possible is brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health, where there are endless possibilities for recovery. Retreat provides quality care at their leading mental health and substance use treatment centers, which are designed to offer patients truly personalized and comprehensive programs that are tailored to their needs. Retreat Substance Use and Mental Health Treatment Centers in Palm Beach County, Florida, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and New Haven, Connecticut do everything in their power to ensure that patients receive the highest quality treatment in a safe and comfortable setting. So reach out today at RetreatBehaviorHealth.com or call at 855-802-6600 for more information. Again, that's RetreatBehaviorHealth.com. Hello, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And uh, give us a follow, give us a like, give us some comments, questions, concerns. Uh, We'd like to improve this program, and just we're just so happy that you're joining us tonight. So this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. So today we're going to be talking about uh, my friends in Ohio. So I've talked about this before on the the podcast that uh, I go out several times a year to Ohio and help with the uh, post uh, critical incident seminar out there, which is called assist in Ohio. And there's a previous episode uh, with Heidi Marshall. You may recall that where I talked about uh, being invited out to the Ohio assist and my relationship with them, which all started with, uh, uh, with the fact that I met Heidi Marshall at the FBI Academy and we did some work together. But along the way, I met a lot of other folks uh, uh, in the program and doing uh, just doing phenomenal work out there for all the first responders. And one of those people is Steve Click, who we are going to be meeting tonight and hearing all about. And I met Steve at Ohio PCIS, and he retired as well from the Ohio Highway Patrol and now works for the, the state of Ohio. And he's going to be talking with us. And uh, so Steve's here on the line. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate this opportunity. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, and and we're all excited to hear about what it is that you do and the great work going on out there in Ohio. So, uh, Steve, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Um, joined the Highway Patrol back in 1982 and uh, retired in November of 2018 as a lieutenant assigned to the Office of Personnel, Ohio Assist Program. Uh, in fact, I had the uh, privilege of working with and for Heidi uh, before she uh, went to the academy and then subsequently retired and and uh, assumed her new position as an instructor there in, in Virginia. Uh, my position with the Ohio Assist uh, program was great. It gave me the opportunity to, again, meet wonderful folks like you and Lily and, and a bunch of folks from across the country. We partnered with uh, 10 other states at that time, and I got the opportunity to go to many of those states uh, and share their experience at their post-critical incident seminars, steal a bunch of great ideas that those folks have had, uh, some of those folks have been doing it for quite a while. And uh, for instance, the state of South Carolina has been holding these seminars and that's where they originated since the year 2000. And uh, so they've really got it down to a science and uh, had a great opportunity to spend time with them. Uh, ran the Ohio Assist program here in Ohio until my retirement, at which time I was uh, asked to come on board with the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Now, our partnership with OMAS had started um, about 2018, early 18, late 17, and uh, they were interested in bringing on a first responder. 
Uh, they recognized the fact that Ohio's first responders really didn't have a representative or anybody advocating for them uh, with Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And those folks have been extremely great and very supportive of police, fire, EMS, corrections, dispatch uh, here in the state of Ohio. But they felt that they needed to bring somebody on board that actually uh, spoke that language. It's really funny. My boss is the trauma-informed care coordinator for the state of Ohio. And he says that uh, he tells the story that he can go in and talk to a group of officers or firefighters or whoever, and, and they're very polite, and they're very courteous, and they just dismiss him as soon as he's out of the room. He said, Steve goes in and he just starts barking at him in that cop voice, and everybody listens and pays attention and interacts and, and answers him back. And uh, I just kind of think it's kind of funny that, that he recognizes that uh, cops want to talk to cops and first responders want to talk to first responders, and that's given me a great opportunity. Uh, with OMAS, I've been able to travel uh, around the state. Of course, you know, that kind of got uh, put on hold here in March, so we've had to go virtual. But prior to that, I got to travel around the state two to three days a week. I was going out and speaking to police agencies, fire agencies, uh, EMS, addiction mental health boards, mental health recovery boards, uh, children's services, uh, you name it. Anybody that we got a chance to uh, go talk to, we took that opportunity even got to sleep in a firehouse one night, which was kind of a, a unique opportunity. Uh, but the idea is to help represent Ohio's 92,000 plus first responders. And that definition of first responder has continued to expand. Uh, you know, again, it's the traditional law enforcement, fire, EMS, corrections, dispatch. But we've also worked with some Ohio-based military, the Ohio Air Guard, and the Ohio Army National Guard. We've worked with... Uh, frontline nurses uh, who have been on the front lines of battling the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, so we've got a chance to work with them. We've had a chance to work with some of the staff in our state hospitals, which are dealing with uh, persons across the state of Ohio that have had uh, mental issues and mental uh, problems that they're able to assist with and, and provide them the treatment and care that they need. So we get an opportunity to work with a lot of people. In addition to that, I'm very fortunate in that I've worked with the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation on the first statewide Ohio Suicide Prevention Plan. And that plan specifically identifies first responders as an at-risk group to suicide. Sadly, every year in the United States, we lose two and a half times the number of law enforcement or of first responders to suicide that we do to line of duty, both police and fire EMS. Uh, we don't have good statistics on dispatch, but we do know that we lose two and a half times the number of, of police, fire, and EMS to suicide as to line of duty. So uh, being identified as an at-risk group, uh, the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation requested uh, that I be a part of that planning committee and the, uh, the implementation committee for their suicide prevention plan. I also have the opportunity uh, to work with the OMAS leadership in providing guidance and insight into the culture of first responders. And recently I was given the opportunity uh, to speak to Ohio's Governor uh, Mike DeWine after we'd had a couple of law enforcement suicides here in the state of Ohio. Uh, and he was concerned and he convened a meeting of OMAS staff and some other policy uh, makers within state government. And I was given the opportunity to represent first responders uh, in that uh, meeting with the governor. 
Uh, so we're getting an opportunity to do a lot of, of exciting things. Uh, we're partnering with the Ohio State University and looking at how we can benefit and provide um, services to first responder families, uh, both children and spouses. Uh, that's kind of been a, a group that we've been aware that we needed to provide some services for, but uh, to date really haven't found a program out there that we felt met those needs. So we're working, uh, we're excited to be working with the Ohio State University on that. OMAS also partnered with the Ohio State University on creating the first responder app, uh, an app that we have available on the phones to Ohio first responders. It's completely free of charge. Uh, it gives the first responders some reading material, some ideas after they do an initial uh, anonymous assessment, uh, but it gives them an opportunity to get some information about where they are and um, different resources that they have available to them, uh, which we, we were very excited about. And again, being able to provide that to Ohio's first responders uh, free of charge, no charge to the uh, individual, no charge to their agency or anything else like that. I do a number of trainings here in the state of Ohio. I do a class on crisis awareness uh, that can include a, 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 an hour or so of, of addiction awareness. Uh, much of the material I stole from you. Um, and, uh, uh, but because I, I'll be honest, I think as first responders, um, as law enforcement, whatever you want to say, we're aware that there is an issue of addiction in yeah. our, our culture, in our community, but we don't talk about it. Um, you know, it's, if we don't talk about it, it's not there. We don't acknowledge it much like we don't acknowledge a lot of things. And we think if we don't say the words, then they're not there. And one of the things that I've really appreciated in, in getting to hear you speak and, and watching the crowd, uh, because I've had the opportunity to get to hear you speak a couple of times. And the last couple of times I'm, I'm able to kind of watch the group as they listen to you talk. And, and it's so funny because I, I watch you and I listen to you talk and I, and I see them stare down at the table or yeah. I see them. I see them look at you like, how did he know? And, you know, um, I, I just think it's very important that we recognize and not hide from that and that we provide those services and hopefully get to these folks before they get in trouble and before they lose their position and, and lose their benefits. And, and, you know, then they've got no opportunity for help. Uh, I think it's I think it's terrible for us to act like it, it doesn't exist and then not afford the opportunities to, to give assistance to those people, especially if they have the courage. And that's what it is in my mind, courage to step up. I have learned so much that I didn't know about addiction from listening to you, from listening to Jack and some of the other folks that we've used um, to, to talk about this issue that I just I never knew. And I believe uh, it has made me far more empathetic and understanding about individuals who are struggling with addiction and, and even those folks that are struggling in recovery. Um, I, I think I have a better understanding that, you know, just making it to recovery, um, that just gets you partway there, uh, that it is, it is just the very beginning of the fight and that, uh, that that's an ongoing daily um, struggle for those folks. And uh, having been able to, to speak, you know, to talk to you in depth and, and uh, get to hear Lily talk and some of the other folks has really given me some insight that I, I try to bring a little bit, and I mean precious little bit, 
uh, to the conversation when I do the crisis awareness with addiction, uh, just to kind of give them an idea, look, there's a lot of great information out there and, and you need to take advantage of getting that. The idea behind crisis awareness though, Mike, is that uh, I just want to give everybody, look, you're going to have a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance for you right now. And I want them to understand that they are normal and that their reaction to these incident or incidents, a career's worth sometimes, is perfectly normal for them right now. So often first responders think they're the only one. They think that no one else has ever been through that. And I tell them all the time, tell me your story. Tell me what happened. Tell me what your reaction to it was. Give me 20 minutes in a computer and I will find three other officers or firefighters or whatever in at least two other states that will tell me almost exactly the same story. And it's not to take away from what they've experienced. I just want them to understand that they're normal. They're not the only one. Other people have made it through. There is hope. And that's the whole idea behind crisis awareness. You know, as law enforcement officers, we're taught, uh, if you get in a fight, expect to get punched. If the person has an edged weapon, expect to get cut. And when it happens, we don't want you to freak out and, you know, oh my God, I got cut. We want you to do what you need to do to save your life. And that's the idea behind crisis awareness. When you've been involved in this situation or series of situations and you aren't sleeping, and you're having problems at home, and you're having all these things, what I'm hoping you'll do is go, oh, wait a minute, that guy told me that this could happen, and that I'm not crazy, and that I can get help, and that there's resources out there for me, and, and I don't have to be ashamed, and I can ask for those resources, and it, it doesn't make me weak, it actually makes me stronger, and it makes me smarter, the fact that I'm willing to ask for help. Uh, so that program has been very successful. We also offer a program called self-care. And as silly as it sounds, very often first responders, uh, being sheepdogs, to steal a phrase from Colonel Dave Grossman, um, they worry more about everybody else than they do themselves. They worry about their family, their friends, their coworkers, their community. And if they make any time for themselves, they are way, way down on the list. And so we talk to them and, and nothing that I talk about in self-care is something that no one knows or has never heard before, but it just reminds them that it's important that they take time for them in order to be better at doing what they do. And that's how I, I explain it to them. In order for you to be the best police officer, best firefighter, best dispatcher, whatever you are, you've got to take time to recharge. You've got to take time to take care of yourself. You owe it to yourself, you owe it to your family, your coworkers and your community. So we talk about that. Third course that we offer is called After the Call. And After the Call is a, a program that we put together um, to talk to an agency about what do you do in the event that you lose somebody to line of duty, accident or suicide. And it's not a, a course of telling any agency, you need to do this. That's, that's not what we're about. What we want to do is we want to start the conversation. If you're an agency that has never thought about it and you don't have a policy and you've never sit down as a command staff and said, when this happens, not if, when this happens, what are we as an agency going to do? I hope to start that conversation. I hope to start those questions. For instance, how long will memorials stay up at the department? You know, how long are you going to allow those memorials to be displayed? How long are you going to display mourning bands 
Are you going to mark the vehicles? As as silly a question as you might think this would be, how many American flags are you going to buy? We had a situation here in Ohio where a high-ranking officer from an agency passed away from cancer. Wasn't a line of duty death, but he passed away from cancer. But he was very well known, very well respected, and very high ranking within his agency. His family wanted seven American flags. Well, the problem is the flags that department buy are $325 a piece. And you think to yourself, well, how can you put a dollar value on it? But in this time where everybody's budgets are going to be really, really closely looked at, do you have $2,100, $2,200 to buy flags that you're going to give away? And some agencies, maybe they do, but some agencies don't. And let's talk about that before we're in the middle of all the emotion of having just lost somebody. The question comes up, if we lose somebody to suicide, how are we as an agency going to treat their death? Are we going to do an escort? Are we going to post an honor guard? Are we going to allow them to be buried in uniform? All of those questions, let's answer them before we're in the middle of it. And that's the idea behind after the call is just let's start that conversation now while things are calm, while things are okay, and then let it be the department's decision as opposed to just one individual. And of course, that's always subject to change as things happen, but um, let's get it on writing. Let's get it down so that if something happens, and heaven forbid it happens to, to the chief executive, you know, let make sure the second, third, and fourth in command know where to find that information so that they can, you know, not have to worry about making all those decisions while they're trying to struggle with the emotional loss of having lost somebody. The fourth course that we offer right now is called QPR. It's Question, Persuade, and Refer. It is a national-based suicide education awareness and prevention program. Um, I'm a certified QPR instructor from the QPR Institute. Uh, It's been used all over the country. They have modules for education, uh, healthcare workers, public safety. Um, They have a number of modules for different programs uh, and we do offer that program as well. The last program that that I offer right now, and I'm I'm in the process of vetting this out, Mike, again, I, I really appreciate Uh, and added some of the things, uh, suggestions that you gave me about this, is a program that we're putting together for retirees. Those that are approaching retirement and maybe those that just recently, just, just recently retired. And to answer some of the questions about what life is going to be like on the other side of the scene tape. Once you're no longer have initials or rank in front of your name, what are some of the things that you need to think about as you're approaching that point? And what are some of the things that you need to think about as soon as you make that decision and that day comes? And, you know, we all think about retirement. We all plan for retirement. Oh, it's going to be great. And I'm going to hang out all day and I'm going to go ride my motorcycle and I'm going to fish and I'm going to do and I'm going to do. And then that day comes and all that sounds really good. But is that enough to fulfill your purpose? You know, for the most of your adult life, you've had a purpose. You've, you've had a mission. Now, what is your purpose? What is your mission going to be? And it can be something totally new. And that's, that's great. We hope that you find that, that passion that gets you up in the morning. But you got to think about it. You got to plan for it. And you got to know where you're going to be going. And uh, finances, health care, um, all those type of things. Do you want to work? How much do you want to work? Do you want to do the same thing you've been doing for the last 
20, 30, 35 years? Or do you want to do something completely different? And what plans are you making now to be able to do that? So we're, we're getting that, that program finally vetted out and I'm finishing up the, the presentation on that. Uh, we'll get some final vetting on that and then we'll make that available uh, to agencies here in the state of Ohio. All of our trainings are completely free of charge to the agency and any individuals that attend. And like I said, right now I'm doing everything virtually. I certainly hope that I can get back to being able to see folks in person. I far prefer that to sitting in my desk chair uh, talking to my laptop. Uh, as Heidi will tell you, um, she used to make fun of me because she would make me say how many steps I had on my Fitbit before I would start to teach. And she would have me report how many steps I had when I was done teaching. Um, she thought that was pretty entertaining. But, uh, you know, we certainly want to get these programs out. And the important thing is, is that we don't want an agency or an individual to not be able to get the training or the help they need because it's a financial issue. Uh, how heartbreaking is that, that an individual couldn't get the help they need because their agency couldn't afford to send them or they couldn't afford to have some you know, speaker come in and talk. The last thing I'd like to talk about really quick is just the Ohio Assist Post-Critical Incident Seminars. Ohio has done nine post-critical seminars since March of 2017 for 252 first responders and support persons. A support person is a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, coworker. We've had several people bring coworkers. Uh, we had one individual who worked for corrections bring the person who worked in benefits that after she was violently, very violently assaulted, by an inmate, that person in benefits became her lifeline in helping her get the help that she needed and, and take care of the medical issues and everything else. And that's the person that she chose to bring with her to PCIS uh, to share her, her time there. Um, so we've been able to provide this for 252 persons uh, to date. Our next one starts this coming Monday. Thank goodness you're coming uh, for this one. We're looking forward to that. Oh, uh, but we, we start again this Monday. Uh, and our PCIS is, is really a, a great opportunity. And again, it's I think it's in 11 or 12 states now uh, here in the United States, and it's expanding constantly. On the first day, an individuals get a chance to tell their story, not a testimony, not an inquisition, not an investigation. They just get a chance to tell their story. And what we're most interested in is how is that event affecting you and your family today? We, we know what happened immediately afterwards and the logistics of, you know, how many rounds were fired or what fire apparatus was there on the scene or, or that's that's information we, we like to know. But we're way more interested in how is that event affecting you and your family today? And they get a chance to tell their story. And what's interesting about that, Mike, is, as you know, we, we have the support persons, the uh, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, co-workers come and share that with them. And what we find is very often the first responder very heavily edited to their family what happened because they don't want to scare their family. They don't want to concern them. So they really, really give them a, a, a very watered down version of what really happened. What we also find out is that the spouses, that support person who was home, never has hardly expressed to that first responder what it was like to be the person that got that phone call and had to drive to the hospital or had those officers show up at the door. And 
because they definitely don't want to add to the burdens that the first responders already feeling. And very often we see couples that this may be the very first time they've had this open and frank conversation about what happened. And they, you know, it's unedited. Uh, we don't interrupt people. We let them tell their story. And we find that, you know, sometimes that starts a conversation that carries over into that evening when they go back to their hotel room over the next couple of days while they're having meals and it continues on on their drive home. I had a very good friend of mine attend PCIS and his wife would not come with him. Uh, she had decided that they weren't going to stay married uh, and he came to PCIS. And when he got in his car to leave on Wednesday, he called her and, and he asked her, would you please be home when I get home? I want to talk to you. And she says, okay, sure, I'll, I'll be here, but, but why? And he said, I wanted to tell you you were right. She goes, well, I've been right about a lot of things, but can you be more specific? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he said, the things that you told me, the way I had changed, what I had become because of my job and what I had allowed it to do to me. She goes, so, so I tell you and you don't listen. What changed? And he says, I, I heard it from so many other people. And, I, and I'm asking you to please, please be there when I get home. That was two and a half years ago. They are still together. I don't know that things are perfect. I guarantee they're not perfect. Nobody is. But they're still trying. They didn't give up because he saw in that PCIS, in talking to other officers and firefighters and dispatchers and listening to their spouses, he heard what he had never heard before. And he was able to take that and learn from it. And he and his wife, they're working on it. And, and to me, that's one of the best successes that you can possibly imagine is, is they didn't give up. We give the spouses an opportunity to meet just as the spouses because they've got some unique things and they need to share with each other. We also give everybody an opportunity to meet one-on-one -on -one with a clinician who understands public safety. You know, we don't always use the most professional language. <laughs> we, uh, we, we sometimes use some terminology that's a little rough and we say dumb things that, well, we don't really mean that we're going to do, but you know, it's just kind of the way we talk and, and this gives them an opportunity to have those conversations and, and share those experiences as spouses and with the clinicians. Uh, our clinicians are amazing. They understand public safety. They understand first responders and they know the difference between what we say and what we mean. In the evenings, we offer a couple of different activities. We offer uh, relaxation yoga. I've done it every time and I've survived. We offer a non-denominational prayer service for those people who want to, to do that. And a lot of people find comfort in that. And we also offer, thanks to you, uh, an opportunity for individuals who want to talk about addiction. And what's wonderful about the program that you offer at these is it's open. So I don't have to be in recovery. Maybe I'm thinking I should be. Maybe I'm thinking that maybe my spouse should be, but I get an opportunity to come in and I get an opportunity to have a conversation in a very non-judgmental, a very open, um, nurturing and supporting environment. And I'm allowed to ask questions and, and I'm, I'm going to get straight, frank, honest answers to those questions. Um, so, um, we, we offer that every evening. We offer that, uh, both Monday and Tuesday evening of the seminar, uh, on Tuesday, we break into small groups of similar circumstances, not exactly the same, 
But if we have a group of shooters, they get to, to meet together. If we have a group of individuals uh, who might have been injured in the line of duty, they get to talk. We also we, we separate out our communicators, our dispatchers. You know, if you think of a true first responder, our dispatchers and communicators in this country are the actual true first responder, because very often they're the ones that take that hysterical, screaming, panicked phone call. And from that, they have to pull out the information that they need to safely dispatch police, fire, EMS uh, to respond to those situations. So they're the actual ones that get the first call. Law enforcement, you know, police and fire and EMS, we kind of get the second and third call. So we allow our dispatchers to, to split off. So everybody gets to break into small groups. We talk about addiction. We talk about relationships, uh, relationships being extremely important. We have some dynamic couples that talk about where they were uh, and what this job had done uh, to them and where they were then and, and where they are now, that they're still a work in progress. Um, we have one of the most amazing speakers in Reverend Richard Ellsworth. Reverend Ellsworth is the division chaplain for the Highway Patrol and for Ohio Assist. He is 95 years young this past July. He served his country in the Second World War. He's an engineer by education, and he's been in the clergy for about 70 years. And Reverend Ellsworth comes up and he talks about the ministry of presence. The importance is just being there for each other. The very first time Reverend Ellsworth did this in person, he did it in Cleveland. We did a PCIS up there. And the only dry eye in the room was Rev's. And to this day, when we hear him talk, uh, it's very hard not to get very emotional when you listen to Rev and, and understand that what he's saying comes from the heart and that uh, it means so much that just sometimes just being there with each other, not saying anything and, and how important that is. On the third day, we get everybody back together and we, we start to wrap up. Uh, during the course of uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, we give them an opportunity to do um, chair massage uh, we can't ask you to get rid of all the tension and everything else if you're still holding it in your muscles. Maybe you've never had a massage before and kind of give you an idea that this might be something you want to do when you get home. We, we wrap up our small groups and we get back together. And uh, a very good friend of mine and classmate, uh, retired Major Lisa Taylor from the Highway Patrol, tells her story. She was off duty. She was on a motorcycle trip and she was struck uh, by an impaired driver. Uh, and she was seriously, I mean, severely injured. My first phone call that day was Lisa's been hit by a drunk in West Virginia and she's not going to make it. The second phone call was they think they can save her life, but she's going to lose her leg. And the third phone call was, well, they're packaging her up and they're shipping her to Columbus. And it was a very, very long, hard difficult, painful recovery for Lisa. And she subsequently had to retire from the patrol, which she absolutely did not want to do. But what's amazing about Lisa is she looks forward. She doesn't, she doesn't hold grudges. She doesn't fault. Uh, Lisa's amazing. She's an instructor at Ohio University uh, located in Lancaster, Ohio, just southeast of Columbus. She has written a book that's an amazing book. It's a great read. Um, and, you know, she is uh, part of a consulting firm and she's an amazing person. She's extremely uh, dynamic and a great speaker. And she lets these people know no matter where you think you are now, there can be better. 
there's light at the end of the tunnel and and you she shows pictures and she talks about where she was and and it gives people a true understanding of look i i can i can get there i can get there if i want then we kind of wrap up the day and we send people on their way again 252 people have attended to date 251 have said it was amazing it was fantastic it was exactly what we needed one person went that yeah, was okay I know who he is and that's okay. Uh, that's probably about the best you're ever going to get out of him. But uh, I took it as a compliment that we even got that. So um, it's a great opportunity. One of my, one of the best things about my job with Ohio Moss is I continue to get to partner uh, with Staff Lieutenant Marty Fallor, Lieutenant Molly Harris from the Highway Patrol, the amazing folks they have over there that continue to administer and promote this program. Uh, OMAS continues to provide funding for it, which is important because it allows these folks to be able to come to the program completely free of charge. We don't charge them. We don't charge their support person. Uh, we put them up in a nice hotel. We feed them for three days and uh, hopefully uh, give them some, some resources and some tools to take home uh, so that they can do that in a healthy and safe way. And uh, that's kind of uh, a long and short of, of what I get to do here in the state of Ohio. I think I have one of the best jobs uh, that you could possibly have and that I constantly get to go and meet and, and talk with and talk for uh, some amazing, hardworking, very dedicated folks. And uh, it, I, I think it's a great opportunity for me and I truly enjoy what I do. I get to meet some amazing people uh, like you and Lily and, and some of the other uh, folks that we've met. And uh, I just, I really think this is a great opportunity. It is. And it is uh, just a great program. And I was thoroughly impressed when I first went out there and I consider every opportunity to go out there just an honor to meet the people that, that are in the room. And I think what's uh, important about it is, you know, it, Steve, you had talked about how this was just uh, a safe place for people to go in and talk about the issues that they have. And there's never been a, a more important time for this than, than right now, as we know the, how difficult things have been this year for, for law enforcement. And, and it's always been tough being in law enforcement and, or being a first responder in general. But I think this year in particular is tough. And I think what, what happens is uh, just like with addiction, many of the people, and you can see it as you go around the room and, and Steve, you talked about that first day. And just so the audience knows the the way that this is set up is we put everybody in um, on, in tables and uh, where they can kind of look at each other. They can look at each other. And so it's the, the first responder and whoever they decide to bring along with them. And the first day is nothing but going around the room and them telling, as Steve mentioned, their story. And then whoever they brought with them tells their uh, version of the story as well. And what happens is they see that they are not the only ones going through what they're going through, which is amazing because you may have, th say, 30 first responders in the room. They all have different stories, different different incidents, different things that brought them there. But there's, I have noticed in the time that I've been there, commonalities in the stories, whether uh, I started drinking too much, I started mm -hmm. having suicidal thoughts, I started having marital issues. Uh, 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 by the way, there's a lot of other addictions besides alcohol and drugs. Sure. It could be pornography. We've we've seen that. It could be gaming, believe it or not, mm -hmm. video games. Um, it yep. could be whatever the issue may be. But that individual has always felt that they were the only one that went through that. Mm -hmm. And what's beautiful about it is they now see, wait a minute, there are other people 
And they went through that too. They can identify with each other. And that's what's important here is, you know, and that's part of getting well. That is understanding you're not doing this alone. You're not crazy that you are, in fact, having a reaction, uh, a physiological reaction to uh, a very unnatural incident or in maybe it's maybe it's not even one incident it may be cumulative i would say in my in my like in my case my lifetime it was cumulative stress not not necessarily one particular incident but they but they see that another co- commonality steve uh, that i've noticed this is just my perception and i know it's something that i suffered from many 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 years in my own career is it wasn't so much the bad guy steve that, that bothered me if you go into law enforcement or into the military you know you're going to be dealing with bad people right y- you understand that that's part of the job what always got me steve was not so much the bad guy but it was how i was treated by the organization my own people and absolutely i, I felt to me that was always more of a violation to me than the bad person. So, because if I arrest a bad guy, a, a child pornographer, or a bank robber, or uh, you know somebody that did something horrible, I, I mean, I understand that. That's why I'm there. That's my job. But when when I get mistreated or I'm treated unfairly by the people in my agency who are supposed to be upholding my rights, my uh, career, my family, you know, we're supposed to be this family. That's what really got me. And Steve, I'll tell you, you hear that and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but at least you know, this is my perception. You hear a lot of that almost oh, universal. Yeah. Hey, I understand I went through this, but I did not feel like my agency took care of me and my family. Do you feel the same way, Steve? Absolutely. You know, one of the stories that I know that a young man told was that he was injured as a result of a motor vehicle crash. And the, the command staff, it was a, a bad winter night, and the command staff of his department was notified uh, that he had been seriously injured. And they weren't sure at first he was going to make it. And that individual started towards the hospital. And then they called back and said, no, it's, it's not as bad as we initially thought. He's going to make it, but he's, he's hurt. And that member of his command staff turned his car around and went home. And that was many years ago. And to this day, that is is a far more injurious act to that young man than his injury, than the loss of his career, than anything. He, He gets so emotional when he talks about that one individual who turned his car around and went home instead of coming on to the hospital. Um, that was way more hurtful for him and way more impactful in his life, even to this day yeah, than the injury, yeah. than the injury was. Um, and, and it, you know, and especially what we've seen, um, for law enforcement, not so much for fire and EMS, but certainly for law enforcement since May and, you know, in April cops were heroes and suddenly, you know, one terrible situation, uh, and far away by one officer, and suddenly everybody's jumping on the bandwagon to paint all law enforcement as terrible. And let's put every problem, every woe of these major cities on the fault of the police department. And these people who are going out to try to risk their life and, and their safety and everything else, time away from their family and, and to be treated and called those names and to see these, you know, so-called celebrities um, saying the things that they do and demands to defund the police and everything else like that. Um, 
certainly, you know, a, a very difficult time uh, to be any first responder, but certainly for law enforcement and their families right now, just just very difficult. Yeah, it is. And and again, it the Ohio PCIS, I, I, I see it. I, you know, you're talking about how people lower their heads and and, and it is I, I'm like you. I watch the reactions of the people in the room. And when it dawns on them that that it wasn't just them, it's not just their agency. And I'm not picking on agencies. I'm just saying right. this is how you know because oftentimes th- there there may not you know be truth to it. There may not, or uh, it may be more the perception of the officer. Maybe the the agency is trying to help the person. Sure. But remember, but you know what you learn when you're there is it's not so much that it is reality. It's just that it's that person's reality. Yeah, and that absolutely. for whatever reason, and I always tell people when I tell my story about my own particular agency and over the years, um, I always start off my talk with, if it sounds like I'm bad-mouthing the, the agency or if I'm critical of my agency, you have to understand that was my perception at that time. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, now looking back, being many years into recovery, my perception of the agency has changed, but that's where I was at the time. And agencies have to understand that that's, that's that person's reality. And you got to be very careful and very delicate with that person. But when you're there in the room, you can just see that connection that all of the attendees have with one another. And it, and by the end of, and it's, we're talking three days, right? Mm-hmm. Total yep. strangers from day one to day three. And, you know, they all come in, they're all very anxious. They're all very shy. They're all very, uh, guarded. And then by Wednesday, it seems like you, they've made some very, very close friends because of that bond that they've Absolutely. developed and tell it, you know, between the big room telling the story and then in the smaller groups and then in having dinner. And I think some of the, the best discussions happen uh, during the, the meal times, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because we all get Absolutely. together and talk. And uh, just in three days, I've seen some very strong bonds develop. It's that uh, not necessarily tribal, that may not be the right word for it, but um, just that there's just something about that collective experience that, that they all have. Again, all different incidents, but they, they feel like they understand each other. And, and that's very, very therapeutic. I, I really and, they all, and they all appreciate because they understand how hard it is for them. As they look around the room, they understand how hard it is for everybody else. And what is so amazing about this program, again, because these are first responders who want to help, is as I'm sitting there in the room and I've told my story and I'm thinking, poor, poor me. And then I hear somebody else tell their story and I think, wow, I don't have it near as bad as that guy. Or, wow, God, I can't believe she was able to do that. And suddenly I stop focusing on on what happened to me and I start focusing on how can I help that other person? You know, a, ter- a phrase that we use is is one of the things we hope you do in the end of the three days is start thinking about your situation as an incident I was involved in versus something that happened to me. Because if it happened to Good me, point, yeah. I was a victim with no choice and I just went along. For- no, I chose to be a police officer. I chose to be a firefighter. And this was a situation I was involved in. I wasn't forced. I wasn't drug. I chose to be there. When I stop thinking like a victim and I start recognizing I chose to be there, I knew when I decided to become a cop or a firefighter or a corrections officer, I knew when I did that, there was a potential. 
And while I didn't want it to happen, I knew it was there and I entered this with my eyes wide open. And so I'm not going to play the victim. That's the beautiful part about Lisa when she does hers. Lisa, if there's anybody in this world that should have been allowed to curl up in the middle of a bed and just quit, it was Lisa. And she didn't. She fought all the way back. And, and I think that that's important for first responders to see that. And as they sit across the room from each other, like you say, that is so important. They're so worried about everybody else in the room. They stop thinking so much of themselves as a victim and they start thinking, how can I help that guy? How can I help that girl? And, um, and like you say, Mike, some of the absolute most amazing work gets done in the hallways in the evening when everybody's just sitting around talking and, and sharing stories and some amazing bonds and friendship develop at PCIS that carry over way after folks leave. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And and hearing those stories, it, it does. And I think that's uh, that's one of the secrets to recovery. You know, those of you in the audience that are listening right now know that in recovery, uh, the secret is by helping you, by helping you through your, your pain, uh, I help myself probably mm-hmm. more than, than I help you. And it's always getting out of your head and realizing that we have our struggles, but other people have their struggles too. And as long as I'm helping you with your struggle, then I then I am less focused on my struggle. Meaning being in my head is not a real, my, my head's not a real good place to be, Steve. I can tell you that. You don't want to be in my head. I don't want to be in my head. You know, trust me, it's a dark place. But by helping someone else and you talk about Lisa, and and she does. I, she is the most positive person. Absolutely, I have met. And when you hear her tell her story, you think, "Wow, it's it's impressive." Because you're just yeah. thinking, like you mentioned, Steve. If there was anyone that could be bitter, that could be angry, it would be her. But she is the most positive. And uh, the young man that uh, that uh, was under the influence and in. Uh, caused her injuries uh, she forgave him she she forgave him yep. she's reached out to the family and and it's truly uh, an inspiration and, you know and it, 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 i reflect back on it now steve you may remember this i'm gonna, I'm gonna tell a little story here uh, and this was you know me getting taught the lesson that you're that you're you're talking about uh i remember the first time i heard lisa tell her story because i'd never heard her story before and on this particular trip, because I've been out to the Ohio PCIS a number of times, I uh, blew out a disc in my back. Do you remember that, Steve? Mm-hmm. Oh, I do. And uh, just so the audience, uh, I won't go through the whole story, but the bottom line is I ruptured a disc, blew my back out, very, very painful. I, I was an extreme. I really had no business going on that trip out to Ohio, no. but <laughs> but I but I was there, and I and I went, and the whole the three days, I'm just in pain. I mean, in pain. And by the end of the three days, I was just, you know, woe is me, and this sucks, and why me? I, w- I was kind of angry about it uh, because it was like, you know, like like many first responders, I'm like, well, this is <laughs> encroaching upon my ability to do what I want to do, run, work out, uh, you know, just do what I want to do. And I was, I was starting to feel sorry for myself. And then um, Lisa gets up and tells her story, and I was just blown away. On, on how she handled it. And I just thought, whatever pain I'm in would, did not even come close to the pain that she was in and the surgeries that she went through. And all the while, uh, she was just so positive about it. And on that particular trip, in, in that particular uh, uh, 
PCIS, there was also another young man that was involved in uh, an accident, a horrific accident, and was in all kinds of, I mean, I think he broke nearly every bone in his body and mm-hmm. was in all kinds of uh, pain for a very, very long time. In fact, he was still in pain even when we were going through the PCIS, but it was a horrific accident, and I, I won't disclose any more about that particular individual, but it was bad, uh, the injuries that this young man sustained, and he was a young man, too. And, and I just remember hearing his story, and he, too, was just it, – it, it was almost like, yeah, I wouldn't change what I did. Uh, right. I'm, I'm happy. I'm content with all of the, the lifelong damage he was going to have to his body and the, the lifelong pain. And he was just so positive about it. I was so yeah. impressed. And, and, I, and it made me take a hard look at myself and, and have gratitude for you know, what I had and what I was doing. And, and for the time that I heard those, the, the stories, I forgot about my own problems and I started empathizing with their problems and, and thinking about you know, what can I do for, for these individuals. So it's very powerful. It, it gets you to think about others around you. So it's a very powerful program. Yeah, it is. It's just absolutely amazing. You know, when I tell people, and, and Mike, you've seen it, when I tell people that, that PCIS saves lives, that's not dramatic. That's not hyperbole. That's not, you know, sales. That is a, that is a simple fact that I know there are people who are here today that would not be had they not attended a PCIS either in Ohio or one of the many partner states and the programs that, are, that folks are still putting together. PCIS absolutely saves lives and it saves marriages and it, sa- it certainly saves careers. Um, yeah, it's just it's just an amazing process. Yeah, it is. I, and I, I really look forward to getting back out there to, to see you guys. And so what is the, the future hold? So we're, we're in the midst of this pandemic and we are going to be meeting live uh, next week. So what are the plans for the, the next year, would you say, well, or, or well, what in the immediate future? Sure. Um, Right now, like all of the training that I'm doing is all being done virtually. Uh, We're hoping that at some point, uh, whether it's through uh, obviously medical interventions, whether it's through vaccines, treatments and so forth, at some point we can get back uh, to being able to do things in person. But the reality is this, you know, we talk about new normals and people hate that phrase. But what I try to explain to people is the word new just means different. Uh, it, it doesn't always mean good, and it certainly doesn't always mean bad. So as we move forward, uh, we'll probably continue to do some trainings uh, virtually um, because it's given us an opportunity sometimes that you know folks can join us that they don't have to drive, that they couldn't drive, um, necessarily come to an in-person training. So we'll continue to probably do some sort of hybrid uh, as we continue to move forward and we're able to meet in person. Um, the patrol, the state patrol, Lieutenant Harris uh, has worked very hard at providing uh, a plan that she has vetted through the Department of Health uh, for our PCIS next week in order that we can provide the absolute safest program possible. Uh, you know, this year we had to postpone two uh, PCISs and that broke our heart. Uh, because we know that there was people who were looking forward and needed this program. And we had to, to uh, cancel two PCISs this year. Uh, that's why we were so adamant that we continue to be able to do the one here next week. And then the follow-up one at the very end of November, first part of December. Um, because we just know that it's it's very vital that we get that 
uh, opportunity out there for first responders. So uh, at some point, we're hoping to go back to the original model, but, you know, at least in the short term, like the other states, uh, we're still able to provide some resources and be able to provide folks with a, a very beneficial and good opportunity uh, and keep them just as safe as we can while maintaining all the safeguards that the, the medical and the health folks say that we need to do. Um, you know, we're, I'm, I'm very honored that, you know, uh, to be working with Molly and all the work that she's done and in making sure that this is just as safe as it possibly can be for everybody that's there. Understanding that every day they're out in the community, we know that, uh, but we certainly don't want to increase their risk by bringing them down to something. So we'll be taking all the safeguards we can. And uh, as we continue to move forward, we'll just continue to follow the recommendations and, and hopefully we can get back here uh, in the foreseeable future uh, to some sort of uh, in-person programs with uh, maybe uh, continuing with the virtual uh, as, a, as a side piece to those things. Um, our programs, we're going to continue to provide the trainings. Uh, I'm actually booking out. I've got stuff booked well into next year. I was looking at my calendar this afternoon. Uh, I've got things booked out well into next year. A lot of programs that we were going to do this year uh, have been moved to next year. So we're excited about the opportunity to, to make up and get a chance to talk to those folks. So uh, uh, continuing to provide all the training we can, all of the uh, talks we can, uh, connections between public safety agencies and mental health, continuing to promote uh, mental health for first responders. I'm excited about the number of administrators and chief executives that, that are understanding and supporting the ideas and the concepts of, of taking care of their folks. We've got a department here in Ohio, Mike, that um, every year or every two years, whenever they go in for their physical, uh, there's a mental health component. Oh, wow. And okay. every single person from the chief to the newest officer gets a chance for a one-on-one -on -one with a clinician. Now, they can go in and talk about the Buckeyes game, or they can go in and talk about whatever they need to talk about. But nobody thinks twice about it because everybody makes a pass through the office. And, you know, no one talks about, you know, the clinician maintains that confidentiality. What a progressive chief. Um, he's making an investment in his people. Uh, the Columbus, Ohio Police Department has a wellness bureau uh, led by a commander, which is three down from the top. You've got a chief, a deputy chief, and then commander level um, that they feel it's important. They've got five therapy dogs in the city of Columbus that they loan out to us and that they, you know, go to different places and talk to different people and help them. Uh, so a lot of agencies are recognizing the importance, uh, especially as we see an exodus from law enforcement there's going to be a lot more importance on the folks that stay, keeping them healthy physically and mentally, uh, keeping them safe and, and keeping them wanting to do the job. And I think that a lot of administrators are recognizing that. And I'm excited about the fact that they're embracing uh, whatever we can do to help them provide those services for their personnel. Wow. And that, you're, you're so right. I mean, if there was ever a time for this type of service to the officers it's right now it, it really Absolutely. is this is a, this is a this is a tough time it really is and i'll just tell you when it comes to addiction when it comes to a suicide when it comes to all the issues that we deal with uh i am sure down the road somebody is going to be doing studies on this students that are doing phd theses thesis yeah. um there people are going to study this period and and understand that the damage that is being done 
to uh, people in recovery, people that need help, people in the police profession, but but not even just this profession, Steve, but across the nation, you know, right. people that need mental health services or people that need drug or alcohol services. Uh, this this whole pandemic has taken a toll that I don't even believe that at this point in time we have any idea how bad it has affected the community. And uh, I agree with you a hundred percent. I've told my, I've told my bosses and they don't argue with me. I say, you know, as the physical wave begins to dissipate, we, we come up with vaccines and treatments and, and we get this under control and we will get it under control. I have no doubts that we will. The next wave is coming and that is going to be the mental health wave in your first responders, in your community, in your persons who have been in recovery. Uh, I have a good friend who has been in recovery for two years and recently got into some trouble and, and, and they're working it again. And I understand that. Um, but it's going to be, it's, we're going to feel this for quite a while. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's why these programs like what you're doing is so vital and we can't stop. And, and we need to, as soon as we can, get this stuff back up and, yep. and keep it going. And I, and I certainly do appreciate the fact that you are being as creative and being as forward thinking as you are to provide these services to, to the people. So a very, very good stuff. And Steve, I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank so, you, Mike, thank for you this so much. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. And, and, and thank you for, you know, I, I think podcasts like this and, and anything that we can do to help persons and provide that support. And again, just let them know they're not alone. And, and, you know, I've used you, uh, a number of times when I talk, and, and of course, I never say who, but, you know, I talk about my very good friend and, and the battles that he faced, and um, there is hope, and you can yeah. make it. And, uh, you know, I, I use you as an example often of someone who, who you know, made it and is working it and, and, and you know, is, a, is an absolute success story. And, and things like this podcast, I think, are fantastic. Well, I appreciate it, Steve. And, and uh but wow, I, the work that you're doing is impressive. And, and I really, I, I tell you, the state of Ohio has been really forward leaning in, in all of this. And I'm, I'm very impressed with the work that you're doing. I look forward to seeing you next week, Steve. Yes, sir. I'll see you next week, my friend. Yeah. So as always, I'd like to say I don't represent any group. Um, I don't represent anyone other than myself. And my only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and maybe can help you too. So if I or Steve has said something that doesn't apply to you and or you don't agree with, then just discard it, but try to take some information that you can use for yourself and, and try to help others with that as well. So that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we help to impart the knowledge we have gained to others as well. So with that, again, visit our Facebook page uh, if you get a chance and it's at Recovery is Possible and the website VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing and give us some, some suggestions, ideas, comments about uh, your thoughts on the program or any topics that you'd like to hear because we'd love to hear from you and you guys take care of yourself and we will see you next time. This episode of Recovery is Possible is brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health, where there are endless possibilities for recovery. Retreat provides quality care at their leading mental health and substance use treatment centers, which are designed to offer patients truly personalized and comprehensive programs that are tailored to their needs. 
retreat substance use and mental health treatment centers in Palm Beach County, Florida, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and New Haven, Connecticut do everything in their power to ensure that patients receive the highest quality treatment in a safe and comfortable setting. So reach out today at retreatbehaviorhealth.com or call at 855-802-6600 for more information. Again, that's retreatbehaviorhealth.com.